Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I invite you to read along. If you do not have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one of the red uh, pew Bibles in front of you. Again, it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, this is the word of our Lord. So this is it, our last week of Lent, this season leading up to Good Friday and Easter. And if you haven't been with us before this Sunday, we've been preaching through the seven deadly sins as a way to be mindful of our sin and seeking after repentance. And this, in our final week we come, each of the seven deadly sins is trying to describe a way that our hearts kind of go astray, some of those first deep ways that we fall into sin. And this one is perhaps the one that is most fitting to end on, which is pride. So let's pray, and then let's consider. Oh, Father, you are great, and we are not. I pray that we would be attentive to your word. You would be with us sinners as we sit under it. That you would be with me, a sinner, a prideful sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. So I had a professor in seminary, and he gave this talk um, to every class that I had with him, actually. But I remember the first time, at least, um, was surprising. He, he got up the last day of class, and he said that he wanted to talk a little bit, not about um, the stuff that he was teaching, but about the most important verse in the whole Bible for being a pastor. And he said it, and then he just kind of paused and looked around, and you could tell that everyone was kind of thinking, like, oh, like, what verse is it going to be? Maybe it's from 1 Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in them, and save both yourself and your hearers. Or 2 Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage. Something like that, the kind of verses that you hear in, like, ordination services for pastors. Um, that second one was actually the one that was given to me as my charge when I was ordained. But um, my professor... He didn't talk about any verses like that. Instead, he said the most important verse in the Bible, as you do ministry, was this obscure comment by John the Baptist from John 1.20. He confessed 
and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And there are two ways, my professor said, that it's important to realize that. First, we can believe that we are the Christ in the sense that we can make ministry about us. Seek the glory that belongs only to Jesus. We can use it to call attention to ourselves and our gifts rather than owning our weaknesses and pointing to Christ. And we can also think that we are the Christ in the sense that we think our ministry depends on us, that we would trust in our power or cleverness or hard work to build the church and believe it is our job to save souls rather than remembering that apart from Jesus we can do nothing. And all of that I have found deeply true in the years since then as I became a pastor. And all of that I was just reflecting on as I started to prepare our sermon for this morning because really what all of that was was just a warning against pride. Pride is a strange sin for us to consider. In the first place, because many, I think, don't really even consider it a sin. At least not in themselves. I mean, when it's in their extreme form in that other person, right? Maybe, maybe that's kind of not real attractive. But in me, it's a virtue. It's self-esteem. It's something positive. We talk about pride as a good thing, right? Pride in our nation and our accomplishments and our family and our work. And there is a sense in which we can appropriately talk about those things. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. But we need to be cautious of pride, even in those seemingly positive ways. And pride is also a hard thing to consider because it runs so, so deep into our hearts. Like, I can imagine somebody who beats lust or gluttony, right? Not like, not like I know the person, but I can imagine someone with so much self-discipline and self-control that whenever those temptations arise, they don't even consider it and immediately turn from it. But I... That person that I can imagine, right, in that moment where they realize that they've beaten that sin, their chest puffs up and their head starts to swell, and there is pride right along with them. Pride is often the sin of the outwardly religious. It is the sin of the moral churchgoer who says in their heart, Thank you, Lord, that I am not like that sinner over there. As my professor recognized, pride is often the sin of the pastor. Every Sunday I feel its tendrils in my heart and have to fight against it. So pride seems harmless to some of us, and it seems almost unavoidable. So what are we doing preaching against it? Well, to answer that question, first let's try to just pull back the mask a little bit on what pride is. Um, first, it's just worth pointing out you don't have to go far in the Bible to find warnings against pride. It's everywhere. Try this one from the book of Proverbs. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. That is pretty hellfire and brimstone language, right? Or a little later, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or from the book of James, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride can be seen as the first human sin. When Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the garden, the temptation isn't just that they want a, t a tasty snack or something. It is the temptation of pride. Here's the serpent's promise. He says, For God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Take and eat and become like God. 
It's that desire that led us first into sin. Pride is also the first sin of the devil. The prophet Isaiah, he's picturing the fall of Babylon, but using this language that calls back to that original cosmic fall of Satan. And here's how he describes it. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. So it's a little wonder that Christians over the ages then have seen pride, because it's that sort of first sin, as sort of the foundational sin for us to confront. Thomas Aquinas calls it the beginning of every sin. Or C.S. Lewis expands on that in Mere Christianity and says, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It is through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So scripture warns against pride and pictures it as the first sin. And Christians have recognized that through history, but we still haven't defined it, right? <laughs> That's what we said we were going to start doing. So let me give it a shot. I think we get hints of it in a lot of those verses that we read. Eve is told she could become like God. Lucifer wants to set his throne over him in the heaven. Um, we've said that all of sin is disordered desire, right? I, if you've been here for the rest of this sermon, each of the seven deadly sins is desire disordered in some way. And if that's true, pride is a disordered desire in terms of our significance and importance. Disordered desire in terms of our significance and importance. Making ourselves more significant or important than we actually are. That can be true on a human level. Pride makes us believe that we're more important than other people. It tells us that we should look out for number one. It causes us to use our abilities in ways that serve ourselves rather than others. We think that we are more important, and so we organize our priorities in a way that reflects that. Pride on a human level also makes us believe that we are more powerful than other human beings. It warps our perceptions of our own abilities. Psychologists have this thing they call illusory superiority, which is basically that you can show in a lab that almost everybody thinks they're way better at almost everything than they actually are. So like, if you ask people about how they would rate their people skills, 85% of people say that they are above average in their people skills, and 25% of people would rate themselves in the top 1% uh, <laughs> in terms of their people skills. Um, and you can find that in other things. Um, Two-thirds of people say that they're in the top 10% of drivers, which isn't really that surprising. Or, and this one, I guess, doesn't surprise me at all, but 94% of university professors say that they're better teachers than their peers. We, we all...
Bible full of statements like this one. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For this, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. By the thunder of his power, who can understand? And just to be clear, those kinds of statements, those aren't just statements that like about how God feels. Sometimes people who disagree with Christianity hear statements like that, and they're like, oh, isn't that kind of like God putting on airs? You know, doesn't God think he's all high and mighty? But those, those aren't statements about how God feels. Those are statements about what God is. God is high and mighty in a way that we are not. Uh, the author of a book, right, isn't being pretentious because he thinks that he's somehow greater than the characters that he wrote. That is, that is the reality of the universe that we live in. God is greater than us, and in our pride, we challenge that divide. We pretend to know better than God. We pretend to be as great as God. We take these things that God made to show his glory and say, no, that's, that's actually all about me. All of sin is idolatry, but pride is that most destructive and basic of idolatries. It is worshiping ourselves. Worshiping ourselves. And that's why it is so deadly. Pride stands at the root of sin. The book of Proverbs warns that haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked, produces sin. Like we said at the beginning, if all of sin is disordered desire, then here's what happens. God belongs at the center of the universe. He belongs as the object of our ultimate desire and affection. And yes, other sins are about putting other things in the center of the universe, whether it's money or, or intimacy or whatever, but it is pride first causes us to take God and remove him from the center. It's the hole left by our pride that ultimately other sins begin to fill. And pride is also why sin is so destructive. God gave the universe a proper order with himself at the center and everything else existing in relationship to him. And when we remove him from the center, everything else starts to fall it would be like, like if I walked onto a construction site, right, and I just walked up to the foreman, and I'm like, you know, man, I got this from here. You just go home. I mean, <laughs> terrible things would happen, right? Buildings would fall down, and people would get hurt, because suddenly the way that this thing is designed to work, it's not working anymore. In our pride, we've done that. Pride um, not only causes sin, but also grows and magnifies it. It makes the other deadly sins more deadly as it gets caught up in all of them. I mean, we've said that each of the deadly sins is about disordered desire for something, right? Gluttony is consumption. Lust is about intimacy. Greed is about money and wealth. But all of those things, I think, would have limits were it not for our pride. I mean, greed is what makes the guy who makes $50,000 a year think that he would only be happy if he made $100,000 a year. Um, but I don't think it's greed anymore when the person who makes a million dollars a year doesn't think they'll be happy until they make two million dollars a year. I mean, surely they've got all the money they can spend, right, already. At that point, instead of it actually being about the wealth, what it is about is their pride, right? They're using that money as a way to quantify with dollar signs their significance and importance and how much better they are than others. And pride gets tied up in all of the other sins. When 
I envy something that my neighbor has. In many ways, it's not about the thing, but it's just about me wanting to feel like I'm better or more deserving of it. Lust for so many people, or what they think is lust, is really a desire to feel powerful or important. Even sloth, I think, oftentimes is a defense mechanism to protect our egos and keeping from engaging. All of that is because we worship ourselves in our never give ourselves enough worship to make us feel satisfied. We are gods with bottomless stomachs when it comes to our own appetites. It might be worth discussing at this point, then, um, how that relates to that more harmless kind of pride that we mentioned earlier, right? Obviously, when I tell one of my children, I am proud of you, I am not saying, I am tearing God down from the center of the universe and putting you in his place. Um, and while the Bible warns a lot against pride, there is a sort of thing that you could call pride that it does seem to allow. So, for example, from Galatians 6, Paul is calling the Galatians to help and care for each other, and he says, If anyone thinks they're something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, and then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. So Paul warns against sinful pride and them to test their own actions, but he does also seem to talk about the sort of pride that they can feel in what they've done. We have said that pride is a disordered desire in terms of significance, but nothing that we have just said doesn't mean that there isn't a right desire for significance, that we have been created to have value and dignity, and we are made to work in the world and have that work have meaning, and the opposite of pride then is not being insignificant or worthless. The opposite of pride is having a right sense of our significance. And it's important to say that because God made us with value. He created us in his image, and pride is sinful when it makes us act like we have more value than we have. But that doesn't mean we don't have any value. God made us creatures with significance um, in community, with other creatures with significance. And there's an appropriate sense of self-worth that we can and there's also an appropriate sort of, um, of pride and, and significance we can view in other people um, and appreciate. But it's important in saying that, that we not overstate it. Because the human heart is deceitful and prone to evil. And so what we just said then, that we do have some significance and that's appropriate, doesn't undo what we said first. That pride is also dangerous. There's a fine and appropriate pride we can take in some spheres, but we need to be cautious even there. I mean, here's what I mean. Like, like we should be proud of our children. That is, children are wonderful blessings of the Lord. They're these beautiful creatures. And a parent's job is to take a special delight in their children. That's not wrong. But that can totally go wrong even then. I mean, just, just ask anybody who's a teacher, right? You know, I mean— but my kid is so intelligent. Like, they couldn't, they, they couldn't have failed that test. You, you must have failed somehow in how you taught them <laughs> to cause them to fail, right? You know, surely, surely they didn't get in trouble. The other kids must just be lying. Even in that good and appropriate parental pride that we feel, that can lead us into behaviors that are destructive and ultimately that are toxic, in a sense, for our kids. And other sorts of appropriate pride can also go wrong. Um, like, I'm, pride of our, I'm proud of our country, right? I mean, I'm, I am, I'm an American. I think America is great, and that's not inappropriate. 
but that can cause us to, to look down or to not care about our neighbors in other parts of the world or to cover up our nation's faults, and that's dangerous. Or, or like, I am proud of things that I have done and accomplished, and that is good, like the Lord calls me to work and take a joy in what I have done. But that so easily can turn into a way for me to just point to that thing and say, look at how great I am. You know, look at how much better than others I am. And just to say that there is a good sort of pride we can take. Even that It's like, I think you treat it sort of like the way an addict treats the thing they're addicted to, right? You just recognize in your heart that even good pride is something we need to be careful around because we are not going to only want it in its appropriate place. We're always going to want too much of it and let it overflow. That is pride in all of its ugly complexities. That is a hard thing to recognize in our hearts, and a harder thing to about that deeper thing, that's where I would like us then to look at the text that we read for this morning from Philippians 2, where Paul paints a picture of our calling to humility. And as he does it, I really think there are three different things he says that true humility means in opposition to pride. Three things. First, humility means that we are called to embrace our limitations. To embrace our limitations. So Paul uses Jesus in first part of that example is in verses 5 through 7 where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Paul says Jesus is God, um, and yet he does not demand his place of central power, but instead Jesus chooses to empty himself, and he gives up honor and the rights that Godhood included, and to become a human being. There is a lot of theologically important stuff in those verses if you're into that kind of thing, but um, but that's a call to humility in two ways. The first is that Paul is simply saying, like, look, like Jesus was all that, and um, and he humbles himself and becomes a servant, and so you should do the same. And I think that's how we usually read those verses. But he's doing something deeper too, because because there's not actually a clear analogy there. He says. Jesus was God, and he was so humiliated that you know what he became? A human being. 
What is that meant to tell us, right, about our place in this story? Because the, the logic is not, well, we're gods, too. The logic is we are actually Jesus. This is the state of humiliation, which is to say that Paul is reminding us of our creatureliness, our smallness and limitedness. We need to own that we are human beings with everything that that entails. Yes, being human, like we said, it means that we have significance and value, but it also means that we are frail, imperfect, and small, and it means that we were created to be servants. That's how Jesus takes on the form of a servant, of a human being. The first step of humility is just owning that reality about ourselves. I think we often confuse being sinners with being creatures. We confuse being sinners with being creatures. We think that our creatureliness, our limitations, are somehow wrong. But that's not true. We are supposed to have those limits. God created us that way. We do not know everything, and we cannot do anything, everything. And we can only be at one place in our time. We are only so strong, and there are only 24 hours in the day, and that was true before sin came into the world, and that is true now, and that will be true after the resurrection. All of those limitations are just part of what it means to be human. Sin creeps in when we pretend like those limitations aren't there. It isn't sinful to make a mistake, but it is sinful to cover it up or deny it or pretend like it didn't happen. It is not sinful to not know something, sin to pretend like you do when you don't. It is not sinful that you cannot be everything for everyone, and it's actually sin that makes us think that we can be. And every one of those things that I just mentioned, the sin we're talking about, is pride. So our first action of humility is simply to embrace that we are limited creatures. We don't pretend like we do thing, that we can do things that we can't. We don't take credit for things that are beyond us. We admit when we need rest. We admit when we need help. And we admit that there are many things that we don't know. We admit our weaknesses. If you want just a practical application of that, that's it. Just admit you are weak to people. Right? It say that, yes, I am sad. I am discouraged. I am struggling. Not pretending to be Part of humility is recognizing our limitations. And then the second part in that in Philippians 2, alongside it, is prioritizing others. Prioritizing other people. Paul sums up Jesus' work like this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We need to hear that calling in two different ways. First of all, um, it means that we need to prioritize other people in the sense that we actually need to think of them as more important than ourselves. People, I think, get confused sometimes about this or resist this because they say, well, it's not exactly true, right? Like, I'm important and they're important and really, like, we're equal and that's how we should do things. And there's a sense even there, I, I mean, I think you could only say that if you were without sin, right? Because the reality is that we all have the fingers really
without even realizing it. And the only way to even begin to move the scales back to even is to start to treat other people as more important than we treat ourselves, right? If we just say we're going to treat other people as equally important, I think in practice we're all going to actually be like, oh, no, but really it's all about me. But more than that, our call to prioritize others and treat them more as more important than ourselves reminds us of a deeper reality about our purpose not just that we are equally important or whatever, it's that um, the image of God in Scripture, we said that that's about our significance, but ultimately, the image of God in the Bible is describing our job in the world, that I'm supposed to show God to the world, I'm supposed to image God to creation, and um, and that actually is meant to, to undo this whole way of thinking that we have. I think in our pride, we view creation as a whole bunch of I have my little kingdom, and you have your little kingdom, and um, and we only think that sin applies when we're trying to, like, expand our borders, right? That, like, we only think of sin in terms of, like, I'm marching out with my armies to try to take part of your kingdom and make it a part of mine, and that's sin. But sin also rests in the whole idea of us being kingdoms to begin with. In Scripture, we aren't kingdoms, but we are fountains. My purpose is not to set boundaries around myself and try to keep what is mine, my purpose is to pour myself out and overflow into the world. That's actually the Bible's picture of creation working right. Not that, like, you and I leave each other alone, but that I pour myself into you and you pour yourself into me, and somehow we both end up fuller than we were when we began. Of course, that doesn't always work that way in our world. You might say, the world just isn't like that anymore, and so I have to build my kingdom and my walls to protect myself because I'm that's where the other piece of, like, really good news about this call to prioritize others rests, which is that um, our hope in that isn't that other people will then prioritize us. Our hope in the picture Paul paints is that God will then take care of us. Because of what Jesus has done, Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus pours himself out for us. His reward isn't that we pay him back. His reward is the Father glorifies him. When scripture warns against pride, it often joins that with a promise. That God will lift up those who are humble. So Jesus says it in Matthew 23. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Peter promises it in 1 Peter. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up we can prioritize other people, even when we're not getting stuff back, right? Even when we don't feel like they're going to be able to then prioritize us, because we recognize that God takes up our cross. But in saying that, we also need to be clear about the fact that the verses we just read are not about God somehow paying us back for our humility. We're not supposed to be humble because it is impressive I don't know if you thought about this, but the word we're using, humility, right? We all feel like that's this extreme virtue, but by, by creation, that should just be our natural state, right? Not pretending like we're more important than we are, not, you know, not prioritizing others. That just should be how things work. It's not some really remarkable thing to God. God doesn't offer us exaltation and glory because our humility deserves it, but because of what he has done, which reminds us of the deep 
this is in pursuing humility, which is believing the gospel. Believing the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus. I think Paul is actually doing something really clever in this passage. He holds out Jesus as an example to the Philippians. He kind of says, be like Jesus in your humility. But the picture that he paints them just reminds them over and over of all the ways that Jesus is unlike them. We mentioned the first one already, right? That he is God who becomes a human being, um, which obviously we are not. Um, and in verse 8, he does, he reminds them of what Jesus has done. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And yeah, there's a sense where we're supposed to imitate the cross, take up our cross and follow Jesus. But, but what Jesus does at the cross is also something fundamentally unlike what we can do. It isn't ultimately an example, but it is a work that he does for us to save us. And while God exalts us, as we said, you know, as we humble ourselves, Jesus' exaltation is different. Let's read the end of it in full. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord glory of God the Father. So Paul tells us about Jesus as an example, but paints him in a way that seems like it doesn't really fit just as something we can follow. And the reason for that, I think, is that more than just an example, he's also trying to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. This is the gospel. God, in his goodness, makes the world and gives us paradise and blessing in it, we rebel against him and destroy everything and go to war with heaven, but rather than destroying us, God comes in Jesus to work our salvation. He comes as a human being, though he is infinite God. He lives the life that we should have lived as we are in the midst of rebellion, a life of righteousness and love. He dies the death we should die, forsaken by the Father and destroyed under the guilt of sin. He rises again to offer us new life, a life we find not through earning it or fixing ourselves, but through trusting in him. That is the good news of what Jesus has done, and there is no place for pride in that good news. We're the villains in that story. We are sinful and rebellious. Jesus came, and we killed him. He doesn't save us because we deserve it. He saves us because against our pride. I name all of these things, and I am just as much as any of you feeling the weight of like, oh man, it is down there in my heart, right? I see those shadows, those tentacles wrapped around there. And the good news as we struggle in that is that we are sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. But I can stand up here and preach even as I wrestle with sin in my heart, right? Because Jesus Christ has forgiven and cleansed me. And that is the good news that kills that sin in our hearts, that we need to apply to it to fight against it. If you believe in the gospel, what room is left for our boasting? How 
can I pretend like I am any better than anyone else? We're sinners saved by grace. And that is the truth that starts to kill our pride. That is our ultimate calling. To consider Jesus as our example, in terms of embracing our limitations and prioritizing others, but more than that, to consider Jesus as our Savior. He has paid our price and saved us ourselves and boast in him alone. Would you pray with me? Father, you are great, and I am not. And I pray that you would teach me to really believe those words. I pray that you would be near to all of us. Humble us in the gospel and then exalt us in the joy we have, that we have a righteousness and love purchased for us by Jesus. We pray these things in his